Auschwitz-Birkenau, 1944. Silke steps foot outside Block 25. Four SS officers stand near the idling truck, just outside the gates of the brick courtyard, waiting to take the overnight residents of her block to their death. The women are slowly making their way out of the gate, dead woman walking. She pushes through them to approach the two nearest SS officers. Two have died overnight. Would you like me to have their bodies brought out for the death cart? One of the officers nods. Silka stops the next four women. Get back inside and bring out the two who have cheated the gas chamber, she snarls. The four women turn back into the block. Silka follows them in, pulling the door behind her, not quite shutting it. Here, let me help you, she says. The women look at her as if it's a trick. Silka frowns. They would have stuck their rifles in your belly and dragged you back here if I didn't say something first. The women nod, understanding. One of them has died and is lying on a top bunk. Silka climbs up to her and as she gently as she can, lowers her down into the arms of the two waiting women. The body weighs nothing. Silka climbs down and helps properly place her across their spindly arms then adjusts the woman's meagre clothing to give her a degree of dignity and death. Once the two dead women are carried outside, Silka watches the truck drive away. She is left with the squeak and scratch of hungry rats. She will go inside in a moment and put on her clean nylons, brought with bread. If he comes to visit, he likes her clean. And she has a favour to ask him for her friend Gita, concerning the man she loves. Silka finds love a strange word, it bounces around in her mind but doesn't land. But if Gita is able to feel it, Silke will do what she can to preserve that. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading Magazine is a monthly publication dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. You've been listening to Heather Morris reading from her new book, Silker's Journey. Heather, welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Thank you so much. Absolute delight to be here. Heather, Silka's Journey is billed as a sequel, but really it's actually a parallel story. How did you come across the story of Silka's journey. Look, I'm delighted to say first up that I think it stands alone, but if you have read The Tattooist of Auschwitz, you certainly will understand the characters of Silka and Gita and Lully who come into it. How I came to it, Lully Sokolov, the day that man said to me, did I tell you about Silka? And when I answered no, he looked off into the distance and just said to me, she was the bravest person I ever met. Wagged his finger at me and said, not the bravest girl, she was the bravest person. And she saved my life. He then moved on, as Lolly would do. But I kept coming back to her. I kept hearing snippets about this amazing young 16-year-old girl and how she had survived not just Auschwitz, but a Siberian gulag. And I needed to know more. Sounds like a story you had to tell. I did. Very much so. For a lot of reasons, one of which was the impact talking about her had on Lully, and I saw the emotion he had in talking about her. 
But when I looked at stories that are written about World War Two but that are not necessarily war stories, so many of them are about men. And the ones who are about women would be about older women. Here was a 16-year-old girl and how she survived, I thought, was very worthy of telling. And I was in the privileged position of doing just that. Your first novel, The Tattooist of Auschwitz, actually began life as a screenplay. Mm -hmm. How does the, the act of writing a screenplay influence this work, Silka's Journey? When you read it, you will see that I'm still highly addicted to dialogue. To me, uh, conversations between players are where the truth behind telling their story can lie in my style of writing. And so, yes, once again, uh, it's dialogue heavy. Uh, for those of you who prefer something a little bit more literary, sorry about that. And so the style didn't change for me other than I never had that intimate knowledge of Silka that I had from Lully. I couldn't give you with Silka all those snippets of her personality that I knew about Lully and uh, and I got to know him so well I knew about his sense of humour. I knew what emotionally connected with him whereas I had to imagine that more with Silka. Did that influence the decision to use the third person rather than say to actually be Silka? Uh, very much so. I was lucky that I was able to meet people in Slovakia who knew her. I've been to her hometown of Kosciuszko several times now and sat with people so I did get a good hang on who this woman became or this young girl became as a woman uh, but still not having the access to her needed me to go read the testimonies of other survivors from the very gulag that she had been in and I was lucky to get many of those so I knew what went on in that particular gulag. I knew how the women had survived and what they'd done to survive and how they'd tried to feminize their living environment, things like this. But still, I was writing it about a woman who I never got the chance to meet. Talking about travel, Silka's journey presents quite a few language challenges as well. I mean, we the characters are sometimes Slavic, Slovak, German, mm. Russian, and among them are uh, Jewish people. How did you approach the challenges of those all those different languages in the book? You know, we had a, a researcher who's written a little blurb in the back of the book, and uh, he is a Russian expert, and we had him go through it and point out to us, you now what would the correct names of these characters be, given that they are Russian or Georgian or, or Slovakian or Czech, to make sure that we could get as accurate as possible that information relating to the, the different people in the story. Yes, I have more of uh, foreign languages. We throw in a few Russian words, uh, only snippets of it, because I don't want that to detract from reading the sentence. You see the word yet, you're going to learn pretty quickly that it actually is the Russian word for no. So yes, we sprinkled it with um, words, and Russian words in particular. But yes, we were dealing with many different uh, nationalities. I read a report that in for Kutum in particular, at one point, the inmates there called it the United Nations because there was something like 32 different nationalities in that gulag alone. It's quite a harrowing story. Was it as harrowing to write for you as it is to read? Absolutely. Um, there were many times I had to stop because I was emotionally getting impacted by what I was having to write and having to write what I know Silke had endured. 
uh, it was incredibly painful for me because I had picturing this this young girl and she still was a young girl and picturing her life there it does not bring you any pleasure whatsoever except for those moments when she lights up and she does something to save another person that somebody else in particular that the doctor that you will learn about in the book does for her um, they were easier to write than having to tell you about the terror and the, those moments are perhaps some of the more positive moments in the book but there yeah. are some quite heartbreaking moments particularly when she farewells her mother uh, and mm. the moments when she's dealing with her sister Magda mm-hmm. they perhaps were the most difficult to write absolutely and when I, I heard and I was told by people who knew her in Slovakia about how she had had to put her own mother on that truck to go to the gas chamber and we're giving away a few spoiler alerts here but I don't think it matters because knowing that this is what this young girl she would have been no more than 17 at that age had to do and you had to do she didn't have a choice well she did her choice was to join her I guess and her mother would never have allowed that and at that point we did not quite know what had happened to her sisters and to her father yes this I've actually only found out a lot of this information since the book was actually written and we've included that in the back of it but uh, uh, I can't imagine, I don't want to imagine, I don't even want to pretend to imagine how she survived. Silka lies curled up on the stone floor of a tiny cell. She wears only her underclothes. She is shivering so hard her hip and shoulder are turning to bruises. In front of her nose is a damp wall smelling of mould. A barred window at neck height lets in the weather. With no sense of time, she trains herself to sleep, inviting in the blankness. She wakes from nightmares, screaming, thrashing about, banging her limbs on the cold, hard floor and wall. She shivers more, the bruises blossoming all over her. Sometimes a hand throws in a hardened chunk of black bread, sometimes a cup of soup, so thin it could just be water. The toilet bucket in the corner reeks, it has rarely changed. When she awakes from her nightmares, Suka unwillingly invites the blankness back. But sometimes it will not stay. There is too much quiet and a tight band of pressure around her head. Hunger, thirst, pain, cold. She keeps seeing her mother, her hand slipping from Silka's, the death cart being driven away. Other women's faces, shaved heads, sunken cheeks, they all had a name, they all had a number. The images crackle, burn. The crying of the woman permeates the silence. Or maybe it is her crying. She is no longer sure. Some of the scenes are quite bleak, particularly in the Gulag. Mm. How did you go about researching that? Did you actually visit the Gulag? It's a very dark place, uh, this book, when it's set in that Gulag. No, I didn't. For one thing, Borkuta, the Gulag she was in for the whole ten years, is 50 miles in the Arctic Circle, the coldest place on Earth. Now, I had a professional researcher in Moscow, and she's provided uh, research for many, many books and, and television series. That's what she does. And even Svetlana said to me, you don't want me to go to Vokuta, do you? <laughs> I went, well, see what you can get me out of the archives in Moscow. Part of the problem really was that it seems nearly every gulag in Siberia 
and there was, I think, 100 plus, did send their documents as they were closed down to Moscow. And they are in the archives in Moscow. Volkuta, no. She had to be in the one gulag that decided to leave the majority of their documents in Volkuta. So that was a bit of a bummer, but um, we still got enough information out. And of course, it's an incredibly difficult place to travel to. And exactly. Not somewhere that you'd want to travel to. No. Exactly. And Volkuta, by the way, the, the gulag where she uh, was in, it still is a working coal mine. And the township of Bokuta that uh, is nearby has got people now living there who were born during that gulag regime and they never moved out of, once they were freed, they still didn't leave Bokuta. There was nowhere to go. It's a very, very bleak place still. And that's well communicated in the book too. Does the lack of humanity in these stories surprise you? Do you hope that the, the friendships, the love and the support between the women and the, the various characters in the book balances that out in the reader's mind? Look, I hope so, because while there was a lack of humanity from the world in general, uh, the regime in particular, and the people who ran those gulag systems, there still was these acts of compassion between the prisoners. They became family. They had no choice, but they didn't have to, but they did. And I know they supported each other. I know they looked out for each other. I know they also turned on each other. It, it was probably what you'd say a cross-section of uh, communities and humanity today. Come on, let's face it. Sometimes we don't learn. But um, I was delighted to read so many testimonies of women who were there and who survived there that have uh, been translated into English and to read about, yes, how they helped each other and particularly the women, which is what the story is mostly about. Does Silka's journey make you fearful about the depths to which human nature can sink or does this story restore your faith in humanity to a certain extent? Uh, look, it doesn't totally restore my faith at all because I just look around and place this right now and say, yep, here we go again. So no, it doesn't restore my faith in humanity at the big political picture, but it just keeps it going enough at the human, at the individual level, to hope that there are enough people that will read this just like they read The Tattooist and find that grain of hope. That, that instant that they read about, that they can relate to something going on in their own lives. And I've been so privileged to get literally thousands of emails from people who have read The Tattooist. And what they have taken from it is that little element of hope and they transpose it into something tragic and traumatic that is going on in their own life. And some of these emails are just amazing. It's made a difference. I suppose that's why we really need to keep telling these stories, to keep hearing those, these stories. I think so, uh, absolutely. And it's historical fiction. I mean, it's, it's a funny category, isn't it? Yeah. Even though these stories are now 80 years old, it seems important to keep telling them and to keep finding mm -hmm. these new people that ex had those experiences. And what's good about it is that I'm finding a lot of the people who write to me, they are not relating what they're reading in these books to current times. They accept that back in the 1940s and 1950s was a different time. We didn't have 
yeah, our mobile phones to be able to send an Instagram of where we are and what's going on, that, that they were hidden from the rest of the world, these atrocities. And even when they weren't hidden, the people who could have made a difference chose not to. So that's the, the wonderful thing for me, that people are not saying, ah, but yeah, we wouldn't do that today. Well, guess what, folks, we do. But also there's this whole element of time and place, and I will not judge, they say to me. We have no right to judge, and that's the underlying message I want from these stories. There will be people who judge, and I can't do anything about that. But for me, please, don't judge these people for the decisions they made. Until you can walk a mile in their shoes, you don't get to do that. I suppose this is one of the great powers of literature, that it can relate those stories and remind mm. us of those people, those real people. Exactly. Um, I could have fictionalised their names, and that was a choice that we had to make. Do we just make this a pure work of fiction? You know, with Lully, to me, there was never going to be any, any doubt about it. And when it came to putting Silka into The Tattooist, the question was, do I create a fictionalised version of her? Or do I honour the woman who suffered, survived, and I chose to honour the woman, the girl? Heather Morris, it's been a great pleasure talking to you. Thanks for joining me on the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Pleasure's been all mine. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Heather Morris talk about her latest book, Silka's Journey. It's published by Echo Publishing and is available at goodreadingmagazine.com.au and all good bookstores. Thanks for listening. My name's Greg Dobbs.